heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Hello out there, all you beautiful people. The current time in Moscow is 1,737. Joined, as always, by my friend, co-host, Ben Prentice, Mr. Cool BP. What's up? How you doing, Mr. We, cool? Uh, I'm good. I think we, I don't want to jinx it, Colin, but I, I think we actually launched and we have audio and like, I think, I think we actually like started the stream properly today i don't know what you mean the stream has always been technically flawless in execution <laughs> well i don't know about that colin nope as far as i remember like we we pretty much i don't really ever make mistakes so oh that's we're, we're, can you teach we're me? doing great <laughs> yeah just have a short-term memory okay got it so it's basically like shit corners yes okay that's their secret and be ready to pivot at any point in time, <laughs> shift goalposts, rearrange narratives. Okay. Um, pretend like you've always understood and known exactly what was happening. Yes, and vehemently defend things that you don't understand. Correct. Right. And stick your neck out for people who don't care about you, like people who are actively <laughs> working against your best interests. Like, go to bat for them. Okay. It builds I'm, credibility. I'm writing this down. Hang on. I'm mean, actually, if you want, you can hop on over to my um, my paid course, um, how to be a how to be a shill, over on um, what's what's some of those websites where you can like pay for trading courses and stupid course. There there is I forget the name Skillshare, Skillshare. Go listen to my Skillshare. Yeah, because yeah. if you pay for something, obviously it's better. Right, totally. I'll teach you how to be uh, an altcoin genius. <laughs> So what's going on in the world of Bitcoin? Well, um, you know, sometimes I like to start these things off with a little bit of information about Bitcoin itself. So I figured we could do a little mempool. You wanna... Nice. Okay. So what are we, what are we going to do? Like some TA? Yeah, I wanted to do some TA, uh, yeah. Colin. So here, I, I drew some lines. I wonder if you could kind of explain what's going on here. I, I think it's pretty obvious to me what's going on here. Um, like if you're looking at the, what is this, the one day? You're going to see the, the scrunchy indicator just collapsed underneath the moving average vertical horizontal uh, yep. crossbar, which all of us probably know exactly what that means. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, yes, but I, I would, I would like, like let you tell everybody because obviously you know, I already know. Okay, guys, but... this is actually a mempool chart and TA is <laughs> stupid. So obviously fees are pumping, dude. Like I had to send you some yeah. Bitcoin last night. and I, I paid way more in fees than I'd like to admit because I have time preference yeah we should have waited a little bit here but uh, i actually i thought this was interesting so i did i did actually do ta here but um I, I wanted to explain what i was trying to show here so this is pretty cool so at the very top of these you can see these very light blue uh those are 40 dollar fees right and then like i just showed just just to kind of give us an idea of where we're at this is these are about three dollars and fifty cent fees these are about fifty cent fees just using the uh shitcoin us dollars the unit of account to try to like make more sense of this um but yeah these are uh 300 sapper bytes these are around 20 sapper bytes and these are around like four sapper bytes but what you can see is like as so the like overall the volume of this chart is like the volume of transactions um and obviously the bands are uh you know different uh, uh, fee rates, right? So as you can see, the volume reduces and the fee rates reduce. You can actually see the lower fee rates building up here. So it's like it, it's like exactly kind of correlated. As these come down, you can see this band boom start to shoot up here. So I just thought it was really cool. You can actually 
watch this stuff and you can see trends and like if you do need to make a big transaction like like we did uh last night you could you can kind of you know judge and you also we also know that on the weekends it tends to go down although it's been a little weird in this like in this kind of bull market so but i do expect at least for this weekend your forecast for this weekend folks is that uh it you know 10 to 12 set Right, transactions will definitely clear and eight to 10 may clear. So if you're trying to save a little fees, uh, you might be able to get down to eight, maybe six sats per byte if you're uh, if you're feeling a little lucky. Well, and I would put a PSA on top of that and say that <clears throat> um, to be a Bitcoin sovereign or to at least not get potentially screwed, you should probably make sure that you understand um, CFP, CPFP, child pays for parent, and or RBF replaced by fee. Those are two pretty invaluable tools. I know like I've, I've gotten transactions stuck in the mempool before and I haven't even really used Bitcoin in like for transacting much recently. You know, now that the mempool has been full, I'm just trying to be patient. And see, uh, child pays for parent has saved my ass like multiple times, like of getting something stuck in mempool hell. Yes, and uh, and replaced by fee. Those are those are both great options. But as Zoop points out in the comments, and I don't know why he retracted it. I'm still going to say it anyway. Is time to spin up a lightning node, guys. Uh, when when the fees ro- fall a little bit, open up a few channels to some well-connected nodes, and and you don't have to worry about this stuff. I know. I have a I have a cat visiting the stream today. Cat concurs. <laughs> the cat concurs. Bullish on lightning. Time to spin up your lightning node. Yes, you've. Re rematches that now, Zoop. We appreciate that. Lightning is like catnip for cats. <laughs> yeah, they just get some going. Yeah, they they love that stuff. Um, I got a little little meme for you. I don't think I did this last time. <clears throat> oh boy. <laughs> I. I... I, we could probably do an entire show just contending with the logical fallacies of Keynesian monetary theory. Yeah. Well, I, I just it was just, just a fun one there today. But um, but inflation is coming, man. So, like, uh, this is interesting. Uh, this is Lynn Alden just posted this, like, yesterday, I think it was. Um, so we can actually see on, like, a monthly basis... Uh, inflation actually shot up to four percent already. Like it's it's already happening. This is CPI inflation. This is not this is not Chapwood Index inflation. This is literally CPI inflation already shooting up. Wait, to... so printing money makes things more expensive? Is that what I'm hearing? I guess yeah. Well, and no, just to clarify, sorry, the two point six is the CPI, and this is producer price inflation. Uh, inflation. So like this is all that stuff you've been hearing about the uh, the new Bitcoin that's on the market called Wood. I don't know if you've you've heard about this, Colin. It's the uh, lumber go up technology. The latest craze, <laughs> yes. Uh, so there it is. It's it's happening right there. So um, thought that was interesting, dude. Don't you know? You get me started about inflation, I'll get pissed. Because I was look. I mean, I think it was like two or three months ago. I was looking at the prices of commodities, and most of them were up like a hundred percent year year to date or whatever. And I mean, there's still all these people saying like, "Oh, there's no inflation. CPI is it." half a percent i'm like this is this is legitimately the dumbest thing i've ever heard well it, it's it is stupid because everybody misunderstands inflation stop trying to measure prices you, you want to know the inflation you look at the balance sheets you look at the money supply that's inflation end of story full stop yeah no i agree um, and actually you know i have no i have something on that in particular colin if i could bring this up this is a Another, you know, another Linalden. So this is a thread that she did. Uh, it was actually last week before we did our last stream. Um, we were talking about some stuff with Max. I didn't have a chance to kind of mention this, but she said in terms of overall fiscal and monetary policy, including the wartime like fiscal response that we've seen over the past year, 2020s of so far had structural similarities to the 1940s. Here's the long term debt cycle. But that's not the one I wanted. I oh, that wanted... reminds me of the one I sent you. Uh, yeah, maybe. This is actually the one I was looking for. Mm. The next few years are going to test how much deflationary capacity there is in the U.S. and global economy from technology. Deflationary capacity. This is something you and I have been talking about for quite some time. Yeah. So, yes, we know there has been monetary inflation. They printed trillions of dollars, right? But 
our economy can absorb some of that through deflation, meaning we are expecting deflation as part of our go, go ahead. I can, I can see you already wanting to jump in on this. Well, I would just say that, like, yes, I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> but deflation is, is sort of a localized effect. Um, I, I tend see I think it's generally useless. The reason I hate CPI is because I think it's generally useless to think about price inflation as like an index or across a broad spectrum because everything is going to be affected differently because everything because every individual is going to act differently and every individual has different preferences on what they purchase and what kind of capital they have available and whether or not they choose substitute goods or choose to defer consumption or you know it, it, it it's such a complicated equation <clears throat> that you can't even begin to try and index um, price changes and say across the whole of society we had deflation because of technology or, or in this one co- even in one commodity you know it's so complicated it it's almost impossible because there's so many extraneous variables that go into um, determining the price at any given point in time um, that that I I think it's so like I would say yes overall um, it'll test the deflationary ca- capacity but even if we had deflation uh, prices and certain things could go up a lot like real estate for example will probably continue to inflate regardless of how much deflation there is just because of uh, monetary base expansion 100% but my point is that she has like skillfully and kind of uh, subtly confirmed what I've been talking about for so long is that the reason we don't see prices rising in general, despite, you know, insane amounts of money that have been printed over the last two, three decades, you know, going way back is because of the deflationary capacity of our economy that has absorbed this stuff. Right. Um, And if you zoom in on this chart, it's funny because you you look at these few dots right here. um, Maybe this is a segue into our next topic because this, the blue line here is um, per capita money growth. And the orange line is the CPI, um, but you can see this is obviously projected. But there is a uh, four trillion dollar spending plan that they are working on passing right now. This so. reminds me of the outlays one that I sent you the other day. Um, oh, it, it's got it, it just basically looks exactly the same. The last yeah. time that it went vertical like this was right before World War II. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that's a bad omen. But like looking at it, so many of these indicators, we're in uncharted waters right now because World War II was just, it was a different time. It was a different place and there was a lot of other things going on. Um, and then, you know, the West, the Allies won the war, right? So then they had the benefit of reinventing the money system after that fact. Um, what's going on here? I mean, I don't even know. Like we have this weird quasi world war three going on right now it's more of an information war than anything oh i just found that chart that you sent me let me pull that up. plus now bitcoin exists how's the there we go yeah that chart is just deeply disturbing yeah so net federal net outlays as a percentage of gross domestic product that's basically government spending adjusted for gdp right, right. and this is this is the war here um, so uh, with a war, you expect them to spend more money, right. but, uh, no, no world wars here. Right. Uh, and yet, so and this, let's point out, <clears throat> notice that following the end of world war two, right under the Bretton Woods system, um, outlays and receipts were mostly tied to each other. They were pretty, you know, there were years where like, oh, we spent more than we had. Um, but until 1971, they were relatively close and then see the divergence you know right after um the mid 70s you know post uh closure of the gold window and we start to see that that line find a little bit of separation um and then i recall i think that the only time that the balance the budget was balanced recently was under the clinton administration yeah that's right here yeah and then following that now like we're seeing increased volatility um and, and I think a big part of that is as the debt continues to grow, right? The servicing cost on those debts continue to grow. Actually, I think we have a diagonal head and shoulders pattern right here, Colin. No more TA. No more <laughs> no, TA. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's insane to think Scary about. Scary stuff. 
they, they just there's there's just no reins on this system anymore um this is this is another kind of related chart i think i also got this from lynn alden um which is which is kind of showing a little bit more behind the scenes of what's happening um because it, here's 2008 right that's this is right here's 2008 and then obviously this is the fucking craziness that's been happening recently um, but what to me what this is showing is how much of the newly created money is basically just getting dumped on assets instead of affecting that cpi like you were just talking about um before and now what we see happening is something insanely different than 2008 right because not only are these numbers much much larger um what we're seeing is the uh let's see the m2 money stock total assets we're seeing all of these numbers rise right the qe in red um plus fiscal injections green so the fiscal injections go directly into the economy go directly into consumers hands so we're expecting something to look a little different here as far as the cpi goes but ben asset inflation is not is not inflation oh well hold on it's I have, not indicative of inflation should, don't you should know I that my, should i pull my meme back up the uh <laughs> asset inflation it's one or the other, okay? Pick chick, pick one. It either exists or it doesn't. It exists. Um, all right, what's the uh, next thing here? I don't have a... Oh, well, I was trying to... Uh, yeah, I was trying to segue into the $4 trillion Biden pan, but I, I don't really know how much I have to talk about it. Just that it's fucking insanely large. Um, so... What I would say about that is that it's um, a bit, I don't I can't think of a, a good word, but it's a bit, it shakes me a little bit uh, at how fast this is accelerating, right? I mean, rewind the clock like even three or four years, and the idea of a $4 trillion spending bill would have sent the vast majority of um on on both sides of the political aisle like would have sent a lot of people into a conniption and now it's sort of just like well yeah i mean that seems a little high but <laughs> you know we really do have a lot of work to get done and it's like <clears throat> um you know couple that with some of biden's other tax proposals like raising the the capital gains structure um i wouldn't be surprised at all if we saw lower federal receipts um, despite, you know, higher outlays, like dramatically higher outlays, like that chart that we were just looking at. So like that lines up perfectly with that pattern during World War II, where the spending shot up exponentially over a short period of time and receipts either decreased or stayed the same. Um, proposing a $4 trillion spending bill fits right in line with um, that pattern of shooting up uh, vertically yeah. in an exponential fashion. And they're not going to shoot the taxes up at the same rate. So what that means well, is they're... Well, even if they did, they, they would still... So, like, there, there's a lot of... Hist like, when I say this, I'm not talking out of my ass. There's a lot of historical precedents for um, politicians coming in and trying to revamp the tax system to create more revenue for the government. And a lot of the times what they end up doing is having bringing in less revenue by raising taxes because of the impact that it has on economic calculation. So you can raise the capital gains tax structure, you know, by 10% and say, okay, this will give us 10% more revenue next year. And your revenue will actually be lower than it was um, when the taxes were lower because you're inhibiting uh, economic calculation and preventing people from investing at all. Like you're, you're seizing up capital. It, it, I, it's called capital flow. Like you're basically tightening capital flow, restricting yeah. economic growth. Or, or in other terms, forcing people to hodl, right? Right. So, I mean, if these people could have their way, you know, what they'd eventually get is just the, the central bank provides all the liquidity, right? And then they just directly own everything and, and yeah, and then you're just a tax slave. Because they know, um, the, these central bankers, even though that they don't talk about it, they know that the vast majority of liquid capital now flows into assets because that's where it has to go, Um it can't sit in cash like it's because it just gets debased too quickly, right? They know that the uh, people who own assets are benefiting, and they want my cat, that. My cat has decided to venture onto the desk for the first time ever. I don't know why today. He's jealous. <laughs> get to hear. Get to hear her purring into the microphone a second ago. 
Welcome on the show, um, Mr. Riskers. <laughs> well, Colin, maybe, you know, you're talking about historical precedent. Maybe we could go way back. I posted this chart, and I think we've talked about this chart before, mm-hmm. um, finest of early Roman imperial silver coins, but I found another one today, which is really interesting. Um, this is in the Tol- Ptolemaic Empire. Um, so this chart looks similar to the last one, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the fineness of imperial silver coins, essentially the percentage of actual real metal that's in the coins over time, and the fall of the Roman Empire that is commensurate with that. And and what do we have here, Colin? Can you guess? I didn't I didn't prepare Colin for this. What do you what do you think we're looking at here? Um, probably a society that figured out modern monetary theory. Yes. Yes. You know, they exactly. figured it out, and that's why the Ptolemaic Empire is still around today. Um, because they figured out if you just print as much money as you need, you'll be fine. Actually, slight correction on that, uh, Colin. Uh, can you guess what these two little red lines that I've driven, drawn on the chart oh, are? Oh, okay. So the empire is not around anymore. So mm. Yes, unfortunately, it seems, and I, I haven't figured out the correlation yet, but it seems the end of that empire seems to go along with the. I, I yeah, I'm still doing a lot of math on it. But. Boy, that's a gonna be pesky problem for these Keynesians that shoot yes how do we reconcile well um well well bitcoin i guess i mean (laughs) yeah i guess it's different now right because debt is just money we owe to ourselves so as long as we just continue expanding the debt we'll be able to pay ourselves back With, with what though with the money that we print uh you mean like this money Have you seen this? One? I am speechless. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have seen this meme. I actually yeah. enjoy this. Um, this despite the fact that silver is a shit coin, this is a good. Th- I think that this will resonate with a lot of people that that see this and think like the types of people who don't think about this. Um, yeah, the, the, the one silver bug in the audience is super happy. That yeah, right. So think, hashtag silver squeeze. <laughs> they think we're, we're pumping the silver bags. We're not. Honestly, we're not. I should just like, I was thinking earlier when I was like making coffee, I was like, you know, if I want to actually reach people with this stream and let them hear useful information that's going to help them learn how to navigate the world and markets and protect themselves from financial chaos. Um, I should be putting tags on these videos like sil- hashtag silver squeeze and how to get rich <laughs> and how to trade altcoins, these altcoins to the moon and stuff like that. Buy Dogecoin. I, uh, I, I forgot to do that, though. I didn't. I, I want to answer a question that's here in the chat. Um, it says, in your day-to-day calculations, do you guys just assume the inflation rate is whatever the money supply is from the Fed? Or do you use any other measures? Do you, do you want to take this one or do so, you want me to? <laughs> you need to differentiate. There's two different kinds of inflation. There's monetary inflation, which is just an increase in the money base. And then there's price inflation. Me personally, and I can't speak for Ben, I think trying to index any kind of price changes is stupid because prices are going to change uh, across the entire spectrum of economy differently. They're going to change differently in like localized areas. They're going to change differently um you know, for a whole number of reasons beyond just money base goes up by 10%, therefore price goes up by 10%. It's a lot more complex than that. But as an Austrian, um, I think trying to index all prices across the whole of society and say price inflation is X is a, a, a total fallacy and completely impossible. So generally speaking, I would say yes, as the money base increases by 10%, um, the purchasing power of your dollar, you know, goes down by 10%, but that's sort of like um, a heuristic. It's not necessarily that's exactly what you're going to see. You have to look at more long-term time frames, and especially on a day-to-day basis, you're, you're not going to see that at all. Because in the short term, expansion of the money base is going to have um, stimulative effects on the economy because it's sending false signals uh, as people are going out and buying more goods or, you know, investing in... Um, more financial assets that sends false signals to the economy that hey things are great like the money is flowing malinvestment <laughs> yeah they're they're malinvesting yeah so just to, to summarize that i 100 agree with colin uh, is that the monetary inflation tells you what the inflation rate is 
the other type of inflation is not inflation. It's just changes in prices. They're, they're, unrelated. they're, they're related, but the trying to measure the prices and trying to decide how much inflation there is is stupid because if you want to know what the inflation rate is, just look at how much money they're printing, right? So yeah, let me explain this uh, in maybe a different way. So like, let's say that I love eggs. I eat a lot of eggs. Like I I go through three or four um, Mm -hmm. dozen cartons of eggs a week, right? And my my neighbor or like my roommate even, let's say my roommate, he doesn't eat eggs. He doesn't like eggs. Um, So I buy like three to four cartons of eggs and he buys none. And let's say the price of eggs goes up 50%. My cost of living increased went up by a lot. His didn't change at all. And it's because his preferences are different than mine because he's an individual and all individuals act, you know, based on their own me uh, based on their own means to whatever ends they prefer. And each individual is different and their value decisions um, and their their the marginal utility of value that they assign to different goods and services is different for every single individual. And as prices of those things change, I might decide, well, um, I can't afford to buy all those eggs anymore, so I'm going to go buy uh, a gallon of milk instead, and I'm going to drink that in the morning instead of eating the eggs, and that might affect the price of milk because other people might be making a similar um, substitute good decision. And you can see immediately how complex this gets across the whole of society. It's immeasurable. Like it, you, you can never aggregate enough information to be able to determine the impact of increasing the money base by X amount what it will do to the price of goods across the whole society. It's impossible. Yeah. And, and the, and the real point is that why are you trying to fucking do that? And the reason the central bank tries to do it is as a propaganda tactic to convince you that inflation is good. Like it's a great thing. Well, there is, is there is another wrong. reason. So the way a lot of the legislation is written um, for a lot of public sector compensation is that it's inflation adjusted because a lot of it is uh. salary. So think about it like this. If the government can prove that, hey, yeah, we expanded the money base by 25% uh, in the last, like, year over year, or in the last year, not year over year, in the last year, but uh, prices only went up by 2%, well, we only need to adjust wages by 2%, right? And then this is this is not like a conspiracy theory, guys. Like, think about the incentives, right? If you're a government, it's your it's in, you're incentivized to spend as little as possible on compensating your employees so you can use as much of that money as possible to do whatever other things you wanted to accomplish as a politician. Um, it's, it's just incentives, right? It's incentive. It, they're incentivized to make inflation, price inflation, look as low as they possibly can. And that's why they reinvented the CPI like three times. They, that's why they added hedonic adjustments. All right. I think we spent enough time on that. Um, we, we touched on already, but capital gains taxes, you're saying overall bullish, Colin? Yeah, I think it's bullish. And and someone in our Discord was sort of like poking at me about that. They were like, oh, so now you think it's a good thing. And I'm like, no, I didn't say it was a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's bullish. I think it's bullish, right? Yeah. Like, There's I, a difference. Yeah. No, it's like I'm not making like a – no, I, th- I think we should abolish capital gains tax. I think that would right. be a good thing. Um, but I think it's bullish because short-term maybe bearish because people panic sell. Um, but long-term – extremely bullish because this has happened before uh and what you see is whenever capital gains goes up like this um investors realize fewer gains that's that's just how it goes they just hold the assets longer um you're not gonna and that's why that's that's partially why you can't generate more revenue for the federal government by doing this type of strategy all you're doing is inhibiting capital flow um so if i'm a bitcoiner and they Yellen gets her way with her eighty percent crypto gains tax. Um, I'm not gonna sell ever anything, like not even a single Satoshi, because that's literally like think about how insane that is. You know, y- you make a million dollars holding Bitcoin, and they take eight hundred thousand of it. <laughs> why? Why? Like, why even bother? Like, you would just never sell it because you're like, well, I'm not gonna give all of this to you. That's not fair. It's, it's an echo of the capital controls thing, right? The, the more capital controls you institute, the more um, ways you try to control prices, the more you find that they're emergent in other places and the more you actually end up screwing up the system that you're trying to protect. Yeah, it's, it's this uh, kind of in, in 
what do you call it? Um, central planner fallacy that they can control the economy, but uh, the economy pushes back in ways that they either don't expect or, or can't control. I think in a lot of cases, um, what they, you know, because this, you can trace it back to like Bastiat's, uh, uh, I, I forget the French expression, but it's that which is seen and that which is unseen. Um, economists today, they don't spend a lot of time thinking about the unseen. And I don't know, maybe that's intentional, and probably a large part of that is just due to um, not having a good vantage point in the ivory tower. But um, in a lot of cases, the decisions, at least the stated goals of a lot of the policymaking decisions that, that we see coming from central banks and politicians have the opposite effects of what they're claiming they're trying to do. Um, and, you know, you can, you can attribute that to malice or stupidity. I'll let you decide for yourself. Well, and... Just as a bit of context, I don't keep going back to this thread, but this is back from that Lynn Alden thread is this is a much longer term chart. This is from 1920 until 2020. And what you see here is actually uh, this is kind of ties into what that that article by Dylan, uh, Dylan Bitcoinization uh, about the long term debt cycle. Um, you know, people have very short memories. And, and when they say, oh, you know, fiat, it's like, Oh, it's been like 50 years, blah, blah, blah. Everything's probably fine or whatever. It's like, well, so here's like another super macro cycle that's coming along. And while they're doing all this crazy MMM, MMT stuff, um, this this is kind of creeping up in the background. So you want to talk about seen and unseen. Um, <laughs> we don't really know what's going to happen. We're on a crazy experiment that started here. Um, so the event we are in is unprecedented in so many ways uh, this is this orange line is federal debt um non-federal debt and then the blue line is federal debt so it's this long-term debt cycle have you you've seen that um ray dalio's how the economic machine thing works yeah or yeah that's yeah well, and i would add too um like thinking about that chart that you just had on the screen the distinction between federal and non-federal debt is kind of gray when you have central banks that are buying right because didn't uh the fed buy some corporate bonds yeah they're i think we were talking about like the fed buying equities and stuff like a so, long time ago but and, and regardless if they're actually holding corporate bonds on their balance sheet we're watching a nationalization of the private sector happen um you know you, you saw it happen in japan and it's an ongoing thing in japan you saw it happening in switzerland was it Switzerland or Sweden? I forget. One of those two S countries mm -hmm. in, in Europe <laughs> has uh, owns a, like a home. Their central bank owns like a whole bunch of equity. Um, <clears throat> it's 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 nationalization of the private sector is what it is. So like that that distinction starts to become kind of arbitrary. It, you know, it's it's we're not totally there yet. Like it's not total nationalization. We still have somewhat of a private market, a quasi private market, a pseudo private market, but. Um, I don't know, man. Like, the the it's almost like you can't even you can't even measure it anymore. You know what I mean? It's almost meaningless. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Um, state of Tennessee, uh, led by uh, Mayor Scott. Oh, I knew I was gonna forget his last name. He's the mayor of um, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, is working on legislation for the state itself to invest in Bitcoin mining. This is pretty cool. This is you're going to hear Mar Marty Ben talk about this this week for sure because he's been talking about how the U.S. mining Bitcoin is a national security mm. like imperative. Right. And here we actually we actually have a state that's going to be trying to investing in Bitcoin mining. It's, so I'm I'm mixed on that. Um, I would rather see legislation that encourages and protects well maybe not protects is probably not the right word i would rather see legislation that invites and encourages um bitcoin mining ventures in the state rather than seeing the state get involved in it because it's a highly highly competitive industry and i don't think honestly i don't think the state can keep up um and do it profitably to be perfectly honest probably not but here's my galaxy brain take uh, we always kind of talk about the United States as a decentralized kind of 
you know, and, and maybe eventually states will secede and maybe we'll see like citadel type states. So if more and more states actually hold, see, my, my goal is to see like actual governments hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, whether it be central banks or, you know, individual local governments, maybe it's just the, maybe it's just Jackson, Tennessee or whatever. And then Jackson becomes a citadel, right? Like, I, I don't know. I just, I was kind of trying to play it out like on the really long term because like states that, you know, states and, and municipalities that aren't dealing in Bitcoin are going to have a really bad time in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see states in the United States tip the balance of power away from the federal government. Like I would, I would love, I think that that would, that's probably our only way out of total collapse of the United States as we know it is to see the balance of power shift away from the federal government and towards um, more local, like more local municipality, like, it, and even then, like, I'd love to see it shift away from, um, you know, I don't want to see, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to see all of what I know collapse. Like, I don't think anybody wants that. Um, you know, just, I, I call myself a, um, a narco-capitalist, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to see um, society as we know it descend into disorder and chaos. Um, but in order for us to move forward and maintain a semblance of what life as we know it, um, I think that we need to see, hopefully, states adopt more. Like, I agree I agree with you in that sense. Like, we need to see states adopt more progressive stances on... Um, what's good what is now evolving into the new paradigm and and in that in that case we might see a dramatic um tip of the scales of power you know away from these large centralized inefficient institutions and towards states are just they're more agile like in terms of their policy making and even at the state level like it legislation is stagnant a lot of the time and it's difficult to get things done um but states are a lot more agile than federal government just because they're a lot smaller Right. And there's they're representing the interests of much fewer people. You know, they're not trying to fit paint with a broad brush, so to speak. And you can take this uh, you can take this in a number of directions. Uh, again, I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to be a statist here. Well, I'm actually instead like I think, you know, even if you uh, see that uh, like we're on a path towards more of an anarcho capitalist future, um, I think what we'll, you know, hopefully we'll see some kind of gradual transition into that and that the, the existing structures of our society will kind of migrate towards that and thus like the, you know, having municipalities and, and things like that that are in control of Bitcoin. Because I always talk about like store value is a problem for every individual and every actor and every, you know, every structure in our society that we don't have a place to put our money, our, our wealth, our stored, our accumulated capital. We just don't have a place. We're just putting in pensions and bonds and, and equities and, and like a municipality, if it wants to kind of survive this in some way, it needs to build a whole Bitcoin. It just, it just does. I have so I think um, like a totally anarcho-capitalist society, like globe, if you will, is is it's possible, but it's also impossible in the sense that you're mm -hmm. never going to totally abolish power structures. Like you're just, it's just not going to happen, and you're never going to totally get rid of government. Um, you're never going to just not have any um, institutions that hold you know a disproportionate amount of power relative to the individual it's just never going to happen it's it's simply at odds with the way humans organize themselves um but that said you know what we may see and this is leaning anarcho-capitalist it's leaning sovereign individual is large nation states um having less ability to influence um the free market less ability to manipulate the free market as they start to lose their ability to expand credit and money supply um does that make sense what i'm saying there yes absolutely and it, it, you know in a sense it's it's capitulating to bitcoin right and once you capitulate to bitcoin if you get if you capitulate to bitcoin earlier then you get to ride the gains wave um but you lose that long-term control Right. It, it's this it's kind of this game theory, this kind of game of chicken. Um, but in the long run, like you, you come out on top 
in a sense that your society benefits from the sound of money and you benefit from the gains and it's like first mover advantages is going to be huge not mm -hmm. just because the bitcoin is going to go up in value but because you know look around you right now um there are a lot of people that are taking a good long hard look at um their loyalty to their nation their loyalty to wherever they live to their city to their town to their state and they're asking the hard questions like I don't like they're saying to themselves either consciously I don't like what's going on here or you know maybe subconsciously a lot of these people don't recognize it implicitly because they they don't um, really think about these things that all that deeply they kind of just listen to the television but they know like deep down something is wrong something feels off um, and the ones there there are plenty of people that are actualized enough to recognize that and are making decisions like saying, hey, you know, I don't want to live in New York anymore. I'm going to move to Florida or I'm going to move to South Carolina or I'm going to move to Texas. And they're voting with their feet. They're voting with their wallets. Um, the first mover advantages to Bitcoin friendly localities is that they're going to have huge capital attraction potential. Whereas a lot of these other places, you know, that are sort of trending in the opposite direction towards totalitarianism are going to see the exact opposite. They're going to have huge problems with capital flight. And capital flight in the midst of a shift in the monetary paradigm is going to be completely destructive to these large institutions. They're going to crumble under their own weight. Yeah, it's devastating. Um, you know, and as I, I, was, I was listening to the What Bitcoin Did episode recently. Dan Held came on and they were kind of revisiting the super cycle theory and... I thought maybe you and I could just very briefly revisit our episode where we did called Checkmate um, because Dan Held said something that kind of sparked my brain. Um, he said this idea that central banks could hold um, Bitcoin, right? And we, and we talked about that on the, the Checkmate episode of Bitcoin Echo Chamber if you want to go back and check it. But what, what I thought was really interesting that he kind of said was that it doesn't actually take a central bank to hold Bitcoin to start the FOMO going, central bank FOMO, it only takes the rumor, right? Because like, the, you know, go back to the anarchic world government where US doesn't trust Russia and Russia doesn't trust China and all this stuff. So if if the rumor is loud enough somehow that China started buying Bitcoin or, or the US starts buying Bitcoin on their balance sheet, that's all that needs to happen. The rumor just needs to be credible enough for it to happen and then it can start the central bank FOMO. I thought that was just the way he phrased that. I thought that was really interesting. That explains all the Chinese businessmen I've had in my timeline in the last week. Yeah. Wait, didn't uh, Jack Ma come back or something? I don't know, but a, a bunch of Bitcoin Twitter stuff. plebs changed their avatars and profiles to look like they were Chinese businessmen. And I've been <laughs> spamming like pro Bitcoin tweets in, in um, simple Chinese, like all over Twitter. So. Maybe that's maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's happening. I don't know. No, they're just trolling. I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't know what the I don't know what started that. I think it was like rumors about something to do with Bitcoin in China. I don't know. But we are seeing warfare. we are seeing more and more recognition um, from a lot of these like central banks, and and I think to some degree, it's it's hard to say. Oh, well, central banks don't matter anymore because. Of, Bitcoin is here mm -hmm. because we're still in that transition adoption phase. Um, so obviously the policy decisions that these central banks make have an impact, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing that we're living it right now, right? I mean, we can't just say, oh, well, central banks are, they don't matter anymore because we have Bitcoin now. Like just, it's just, it's not that simple. Yeah. We just spent half an hour talking about why they do matter. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's, uh, it's kind of a little bit too reductionist to just say, oh, well, you know, the battle's already won. Because um, it isn't. Right? It's ongoing. And, no. but, oh, no, I was getting at, I think it was China that recently, their central bank recently came out and sort of recognized Bitcoin as a money asset. I think it, I think it was China. I can't remember. I, I, we need to do a better job of keeping track of what goes on in the weekend, actually putting it into our uh, little chat. So it's we tough remember. because so much happens that's bullish and it all like seems to make so much sense to me now that yeah. as I scroll through my feed, I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, China accepts Bitcoin mm -hmm. as a current, yeah. Things right. happen that you expected you know? and you're kind of just like, oh yeah, okay, that 
totally. JP Morgan has a fund now that allows you to invest in Bitcoin, despite the fact that JP Morgan was saying he would fire on the spot anybody who trades Bitcoin, and that if you buy Bitcoin, uh, you'll pay the price one day. And now they, you know, so it's just like it all, it just makes sense. So it doesn't seem like and noteworthy. JP you know? Morgan is owned by Jamie Dimon, right? Yes. So, J <laughs> old Mr. Diamond. Diamond, right? Diamond. Diamond. Yes. Not diamond. He has lettuce hands, but his name is Diamond. Yeah. That he has been a very outspoken Bitcoin critic for a long time. Um, but I think I don't remember if we actually talked about much about the private sector and checkmate. I think it was more so we were talking about nation states and central banks. But this is just probably exactly what we would have expected, right? It's like, of, well, of course, they're they're launching a Bitcoin fund. Of course, their customers want exposure to this. Um, the best performing asset of the last decade. And of course, they're going to provide that service regardless of whether or not, you know, uh, the CEOs in the boardrooms hate the idea because if they don't, eventually, uh, the writing's on the wall here. Eventually, their destruction is imminent if they don't pivot and adapt to this new paradigm. And they probably don't see that yet, but they're getting enough rumblings to know like, hey, maybe we should get involved in this. Yeah, well, he's so Jamie himself has has kind of walked back his idea of calling it fraud, but he's still calling it like not my cup of tea. Right, right, and and thankfully, um, we get these big ball chads like Michael Saylor coming out and lending um, intellectual cover to a lot of these people who had to sort of call Bitcoin a fraud for the longest time, and now they can at least. You know, and it wasn't just Michael Saylor before him. It was like Paul Tudor Jones and um, I think like Druckenmiller. I don't remember exactly, but they're providing all this intellectual cover for these people to shift their stances a little bit and, and not say, oh, this is rat poison squared, but to say, well, I still don't like it, yeah. um, but it's okay, I guess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it outperformed everything by orders of magnitude, but eh, not for me. I don't like making money. It's funny because the fund is a is a managed fund. It's not it's not like GBTC. It's it, they're going to essentially be traders. Right. They're going to try to call right. tops and bottoms and try to beat the performance did, of Bitcoin. Did so you see my joke? I was like, oh, I, what if by actively managed they just mean they're going to consolidate UTXOs around mempool? <laughs> I, I don't think that's correct, Colin. And, and it, they're going to make sure that they have um, optimal lightning liquidity. <laughs> That's my idea of actively managing Bitcoin. You don't you don't trade that. That's how you get blown up. That Wouldn't that be funny. crazy if like J JP Morgan like blew their Bitcoin fund up trying to like trade with leverage? <laughs> oh, RIP Maraud. Mm. Ooh. Mm. Is that too soon? No. No. <laughs> Come back, Maraud. We miss you. Yeah, we we miss you, buddy. We'll take you back with Roger. Um, I, 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 that that that's probably a low, a low blow. I don't. I don't think it's worth. I don't think you can compare the two. He did still decred. I think he still does. I don't know. I, have, I mean, I haven't heard Is from he him in so long. But like, uh, no, not as far as I know. I don't think so. But like, I bet if you asked him, he'd probably still say like, "Oh yeah, decred's a good project." Maybe it is. Like maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not here to say that it that it is or it isn't, but it is a shit coin. I will tell you that. Yes. He he hey, listen, I I, I believe in nuance, right? Like there are things that Murad did that I think were very stupid and I I would uh, you know, kind of cry, decry, but uh there's a lot of smart stuff he said and a lot of contributions he had to kind of the Bitcoin mind, hive mind, if you will. His interview with Pomp that he did back in like early 2018 i think it was like totally changed like the way that i thought about yeah. about the world and about bitcoin that was one of the, still one of the best um single pieces of like bitcoin discussion i've ever heard it was so good because at the time like nobody was really saying that stuff yeah i think it's i think it's called the bullish case for bitcoin which is no, a hat tip to the article maybe. But I, I don't remember. But yeah, if you just search Anthony Pompano and Murad, you'll get it if you haven't watched that one. It is really good, um, despite Murad being a horrible shitcoiner as well. Um, and Zoop is asking what happened to Murad. He had a fund, Zoop, and he was doing the same thing JP Morgan's doing. Instead of just buying Bitcoin and hodling it, 
um, you know, he had this thesis at some point that we were around like five grand or, th or four grand and three grand. And then he was like, it's going to one grand. I know it. And he basically, I, from what I understand, I could be wrong. He shorted it and lost like all of the money. And it's just, it's very sad because I think it was a, a big fund and a lot of people lost money on it, but it was, it's essentially a little bit of hubris. He was kind of into TA, which we were making fun of earlier. And he, you know, he saw, drew, drew all his lines on the charts and, and said, you know, I can't lose and he lost so, so yeah and, and my problem with ta is that like it can work 90 percent of the time right but you can be a successful trader for like 10 years and then you build up this false confidence you think like oh i can predict the future i know exactly what's going to happen and all it takes is one leverage trade to completely destroy yourself um and you don't have to do that in a world with bitcoin right get a job work your do your slave labor take some of your fiat take your cuck bucks turn them into the soundest hardest money you ever made and just hodl that shit man like it's easy and you will outperform 99 percent of people in the world you're not going to be the one percent that successfully trades and doesn't blow themselves up you're just not going to do it and if you are going to do it you're not going to listen to me anyway so i'm telling i'm talking to the 99 percent right now like just stack sats Will Will said uh, Will said in the chat, um, "Stupid bears." You know what's funny, Will, is that he wasn't a long-term bear; he was a short-term bear. He was just like so. The chart had this was after the the 2017 thing. The chart had just been going down and down and down for so long, and eventually got to 3K. And he's like, "I just think it's going to go to 1K before it goes to you know a, a bajillion dollars." So he was just wrong for like two months or something like that. Pick, and, picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. I mean, I can remember. I I bet you I could go back on Twitter and pull up like conversations about him talking about that trade before it happened and before it blew up. And like people like me and like Bitcoin Tina being like, dude, what are you doing? Like you're playing with fire. You're going to blow yourself up. Stop. Um, and then shortly after it happened. And I don't mean that to say like, oh, we told you so. We told you so. I mean, cause we, we did. I'm just saying that like these conversations happened. Um, and you know, I don't expect Murad to take my advice, like do whatever you want, but Play, right, well, know, let's, play let's, with fire, you get burned. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a good tale to tell. But um, I, let's let's get off of it because I wanted to talk about this before we run out of time. Um, oh yeah, this you, is awesome. I saw this, but then you said that we should talk about it. I think that's a great idea. Um, so I'll let you introduce it. Okay, so this is Guy Swan's new um, the way this is like his new project basically where um, users can go onto his website and actually vote for the next article that he's going to turn into uh, a Bitcoin Audible piece. And they can, users can actually submit lightning payments to upvote these articles to bump the ones that they want done um, next to the top of the list. And there's two reasons I really like this. One is because as a user, I can vote on the stuff that I really want to hear. And two, as like maybe an individual that writes a piece of content, if I really want it promoted by Guy Swan, I can essentially pay him to do so. Um, and I really like that model. Some people might say that there's potential problems there, but I, I think that that's perfect because this can't be um, like Sybil attacked, I guess, because at the end of the day, Guy gets paid and that's all that really matters. So like if, right. if somebody pays him like $10,000 to do a piece on some stupid article well so what like so what honestly like it's better than the advertiser model right if you don't like that article just don't listen to it yeah and and maybe if it were me i don't know you'd probably have to play with the the idea that you have final say anyway and it's just uh like i don't know if if, if i was a content producer i wouldn't be okay with like somebody uploading like an mmt article so and my, reading that you know yeah my guess and i don't know this for sure and guy, if you're listening, I, I doubt you are, but if you, if you are, um, let us know. Like, I, I, if I had a guess, I would think he's selecting the articles that go on this list, and then letting the users vote on the precedents. Because I, you know, I don't think he's, yeah, I, I don't know, okay, but gotcha. I wouldn't think he's just letting anybody throw an article up there. Right. So the the submission process to uh, appear on the voting board is centralized, and then. Maybe from there, whatever gets the most money wins. That would so. be the that would be the way to do it. In yeah, that opinion. makes sense. Yeah, because then you you know you're not gonna get like some junk put up there, and have like some Ethereum whale pay for it. Yeah, I don't think I have much to add. I think this is cool. 
because again, people can vote from all over the world. They don't have to sign up for an account for anything because it's just lightning. There's very low fees. You can just add 10 sats. You can you can add lots of sats. And there's, there's skin in the game for it too. It's like, you know, you really want that piece? Well, go throw a guy 10 bucks and maybe he'll he'll get it out sooner. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then I thought this was kind of interesting to bring up with it. So this is uh, John Carvalho. Uh, who's an interesting Bitcoiner? I don't always agree with everything he says, but he's a he's a he's a smart guy. He needs to read human action. He needs to read human action. <laughs> um, anyway, so he has a podcast, and he has another model that I don't think we've talked about on the pod. Where so this is I, I wish I was trying to find one that isn't isn't fully funded. So this is a podcast. He'll post it, and when it gets posted, you can't listen to the podcast. <laughs> you have to start throwing sats at the podcast, and then. So, and it's a lot of sats, by the way, if you look up here, oops, uh, it is 100,000, 100, so that's 2.5 million sats. Oh, I thought it was more than that. Maybe this, maybe this was a different, I, I thought one was like close to entire Bitcoin. So it's unlocked progressively, right? Like if we paid yes. 20% of it, we could listen to 20% of the episode. Right. And it's for everybody, right? So everybody sees the same thing. So if one whale comes in and donates half a Bitcoin and the entire episode is one Bitcoin, everybody can listen to the first half of the episode and then get FOMO about hearing the rest of it and other people could donate and, you know, and I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. I think it's a little gimmicky, but I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool experiment. Well, you always talk about like not having advertisers and having other ways to fund media production and, you know, one of the, I don't, you know, again, I think Sphinx is awesome. One of the kind of potential issues with Sphinx is that like, it just runs off an RSS feed. So if you go find that RSS feed, you just go listen to all the content for free. And I think Sphinx's model is actually voluntary. If you go into Sphinx and you listen to somebody's episode, it's a hundred percent. You can, you can choose zero. Right. So like, that's the point, but <clears throat> this way he's actually locking the content. He, you know, he's not going to give up content without actually getting money. Sure. I don't know. Uh, and then he also, obviously, he has like 50% of the donations go to uh, like a core dev. Or he did Emma mempool as well. So it's kind of cool. I think, um, I mean, it, I, I'm thinking through it right now and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, maybe it's a better idea than I think at first glance, just because I'm sitting here thinking like, well, what if only 50% of his episode gets paid for and, and no one can ever listen to the whole thing? And I'm like, well, then... Clearly, it wasn't that great, and he doesn't deserve to get paid for it. So, I don't know. It, it's it's interesting. It's unique. I've never really seen anything like this. Um, be kind of cool to see where it goes. I don't think I would use that model personally. Uh, it just doesn't seem like my style, but um, it's a cool experiment for sure. Yeah, exactly. We just make the advertisers pay creator in Bitcoin. Uh, Will, I think you're missing the point of this. <laughs> We're, try we're trying to take the advertisers out of it because as we've discussed on the pod earlier, when you depend on uh, advertisers for your bread and butter, for your, for your put a bread on your table, um, you are kind of beholden to, so like, you know, picture that you got an advertiser from somebody who maybe is a good actor when you got them as an advertiser, but then turned into a bad actor in the, the space. So there's many examples of that, but the easiest one to point to is like Coinbase. So if Coinbase was your sponsor, and then they tried to, you know, basically promote Bcash um, and do all that stuff that they did do, then you would be like at this really bad decision where you have to either drop Coinbase and not be able to put bread on your table, or you have to support Coinbase. So it's, it's it's very bad. Well, so like another example of this is if you go to river.com slash BEC, you can get a week of um, free Bitcoin orders um, but because that's our link. And if you use it, like we get compensated with like a small percentage of your fees over like a six month time period or something like that. Um, so like, you know, if you, if you want to support us, you have to go through our advertiser unless you're going to like donate to us directly. Um, Which you can also do. Right. <laughs> if you want. But we don't expect that at all. This is just for funsies. So wait, actually, I want to touch on that. Like, we had that tally coin, and we've had that thing running for like what maybe a year, mm -hmm. a year and a half. I don't know. Um, and we got like a, ch a few chunks of like small donations over like the last year and a half into that tally coin, and then one person came along and donated like one hundred and fifty dollars oh. or two hundred dollars once. Um, well, it was a million sats. Right, but it was like two hundred bucks at the time. Um, it was like a, some somewhere in there. Uh, thank you, whoever you are. That was very generous of you. 
and I went and looked at the tally coin the other day, and I'm like, holy shit, there's like $1,000 in this account. Even though we'd only had like lots of little donations, you know, over the course of the bull run, those little donations turned into like a, a thousand bucks. That, that was pretty sweet. It's amazing. Like it's a am- if you've never earned Bitcoin for anything and then held that Bitcoin and watched that turn into like a pretty reasonable profit, you should try it. It's it's really cool. It's a yeah. re- there's nothing else like it. Because I remember when it started, we were like, oh, somebody sent ten bucks. That's cool. You know, somebody sent five bucks, and it's like, oh, that ended up being like a hundred bucks. <laughs> that ended yeah. up being two hundred bucks or something. all right uh i don't have a ton of other stuff on the list here um you had oh you should definitely talk about miami conference oh yeah i'm going to miami i was invited um by the bitcoin magazine guys to do a presentation on wtf happened in 1971 so that's a little (laughs) nerve-wracking i'm gonna gonna give it a shot oh you're gonna crush it dude you could do that in your sleep Hope so. I mean, podcasting is different, right? Because like I'm just staring at a wall, but like looking out at a sea of people, you know. I mean, I've done I've done a bit of that type of presentation in my life. Um, Should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I would not have paid to go to that conference, but they invited me, so I I will go. Wait, so they they're covering your ticket? Yeah, I think if you're a speaker, you get like a like a speaker pass, basically. But I, I like I'm not gonna pay like two thousand dollars or whatever to go to that conference. Well, I'm really happy you're doing it, getting that message of, because you know I think a lot of Bitcoiners probably have a little bit of a surface level understanding of WTF happened nineteen seventy one. They see number go down, so fiat equals bad, which is, I mean, accurate, right? Yeah, they're not wrong. Not wrong, but like I, I know you. I know you're gonna like put some monetary history in there and like explain. So I think it's. I'm yeah, sad so I'm gonna miss it. I'm, I want the first half of the. I don't know if it's gonna be recorded, but I want the first half of the talk to be like sort of the meta of WTF 1971, like the meme and some of the thought processes that have gone into like creating it and and the branding and sort of building the branding around it and um, what my strategies have been in terms of like how did I turn this WordPress blog with like 48 charts on it into you know a phenomenon. <laughs> um, and then the second half will be more like, okay, well, what actually did happen in 1971? That's cool. A little bit of memeology in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, la, a la Bitstein. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, like the Bit, the Bitstein thing at Bitblock Boom a few years ago, that was a huge influence on like how I sort of designed that website. Colin's the mastermind behind the uh, presentation of our our meme I, I i just found a bunch most of the charts <laughs> see i think my best memes are like extremely underrated like the um thumbnail for today's episode it's if you, if you if you don't know like if you're looking at that and you're like what the hell is this there's there's some artist on like deviant art or something like that that draws presidents in like absurd situations like there's one of like george bush holding like a laser sword or like george washington with like one of the guns from gears of war or like Theodore Roosevelt riding a bear with a machine gun. So there's that one of Thomas Jefferson holding up, I think it's the Declaration of, no, it, it, it was the Constitution. He's holding up the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, whatever. And uh, he's punching the gorilla. So I just Photoshopped in the white paper because <laughs> I love Jefferson. Jefferson's like one of my favorite um, historical figures because he, he was so smart. And so I'm like, he, he totally would have been a Bitcoiner. So he's holding up the Bitcoin white paper and punching the gorilla. And I just think that that's a totally phenomenal and underrated meme. Because <laughs> no, I don't think anybody knows what I'm trying to do there. <laughs> Jefferson was the one that quoted, you know, I think uh, banks are more more dangerous than standing armies or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He has a lot of really great quotes. Yeah. Definitely worth going and reading, like, some of his memoirs and uh, personal letters. It's a work of art, Colin. Good job. I love it. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's underappreciated. All right, man. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything on the list there. All right. Do have anything else? No, other than thanks to the viewers for actually tuning in. I think this is like the most concurrent viewers we've ever had on the live show. So, What are we up to, 15? 10. <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, and um, see you next week. Same, different, different Moscow time. <laughs>
same Moscow time zone. Uh, Hoddle. 